Welcome back to They Talk Sex podcast. I'm your host, L Stanger. You can find me on lstanger.com. Today, we're going to talk about stripping and hustling. This is a stripping and hustle episode with Carmen from Racks to Riches. Hi. <laughs> Hi, Carmen. Uh, I've been following you on Instagram and learning a lot. Even as someone who's been doing this as long as you and like a little bit longer, I learn stuff from you all the time. So sit down veteran strippers, baby strippers, and everywhere in between, you will learn something. And then all you civilians will too. So you can contact Carmen at RacksToRiches.com. That's also her email, Carmen at RacksToRiches.com. And you'll find her on Instagram, Racks2Riches. Carmen's been a stripper for nearly a decade. And unlike me, she's worked all over the country from Florida to Alaska and Hawaii to Minnesota. And we are going to start by asking you a sometimes fun and sometimes annoying question. How did you get into the industry? Um, I love that question because there, I think, is this perception, especially now when folks start out, that you have to have a certain look or you have to have certain uh, skills when you walk in the door. And the reality for so many of us is that we walk in with little to no knowledge, right? So uh, my dancer origin story was I was 19. I was working at a local bar and it was very seasonal work. And I was told, well, you'll have to wait around for six months, making very little income until it's patio season again. And (laughs) Mm. that just was not going to fly as a college student with very little funds. And Mm. so I literally, one of the patrons of this bar just said off the cuff, oh my God, I think you'd make a great stripper. And I said, oh, oh, really? And I'd never been in a strip club, really had no context for the industry and literally couldn't get into the clubs because you had to be 21 to check them out. Right. But you could work in them as a 19-year-old. Right. (laughs) So I showed up and I remember I wore these like incredibly high Steve Madden shoes that are not practical for (laughs) dancing. I wore like black house panties. I had it at the time, half of my head was shaved off. I had no dance skills and I showed up with my CV and my resume because I thought, Oh my God. Uh, (laughs) A CV Um, is like a list of things you've like taught or done academically. Yes. Right. So it's like, here's all the research papers I've worked on and here are all the projects that I'm doing (laughs) in college. And they were like, yeah, absolutely not. Like we don't care. Uh, But you can go on that stage and you can get naked and we'll tell you if you have a job or not. So Mm -hmm. that was the very unceremonious start. Uh, mm-hmm. to my my job and I <laughs> for I think for a very long time uh, a lot of the things that we take a sort of traditional like of course you would do your hair to go to work of course you would wear dancer shoes of course you would you know have some awareness of how to interact with customers really walked around for years with no idea that those things should be how I, I should be running my business right it was very much a shot in the dark oh absolutely I actually identify with a lot of this that's really funny because I was told by customers when I was working in sales I was in a uh, adult store working as management and I'd hear it from people like why aren't you a stripper there's so many clubs in this town you're cute <laughs> like why aren't you doing that and I'm like I don't know I think I'm too shy <laughs> so yeah went in the door and like tried to dance and got my underwear stuck in my shoes that were not stripper shoes and Oh. Yeah, but it worked out. 
uh, fake it till you make it. So what do you enjoy about your work? Because you're obviously still here and you're thriving. And now you're teaching other strippers to be better at their jobs. Uh, right. So it, it has been kind of a, a, a winding road. I would say that I've come to love a lot of things about the job that at first I was very scared and intimidated by, right? So at first when I showed up, I thought what I would love was dancing because I do have some background in dancing and performance. And I thought that would be a a huge part of the job. And instead I ended up at a club that didn't have poles and where dancing really wasn't one of the things we were selling, right? It was an entertainment club. And as an introvert and a very shy person, it was really overwhelming. And so my little academic brain thought, let me do some research. Let me figure out, you know, let me reverse engineer this job. Who has information? And I did find some resources, um, some articles, and there were some courses that were out there at the time. And mostly what I found was sales literature, right? So that Mm -hmm. opened up a whole world of like sales and marketing and communications research and When that started connecting, that's when I really started to love the job because it became not a job, but really a business. And I could approach it as, hey, I get to choose every day how I'm showing up, how I'm engaging people, what kind of activities I bring for them. And also in a lot of ways, I get to choose how much I'm going to bring home, which is so rare, right? And I you know, also get to learn to develop those parts of my personality that at the time I felt like uh, were really outside of my control, right? So being able to approach someone and then connect with them and then just deliver something that makes their day better and makes them just bring out the best parts of themselves have become the things I really love. But if you'd asked me, you know, on year one or two, I would have told you like, I absolutely do not want to have these interactions. And I'm actually really scared to walk up to customers. So uh, it's definitely a 180. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love all of that. This is going to be really inspirational for people who are like, wait, I thought all strippers were extroverts who are (laughs) exhibitionists and contortionists and, you know, like all this stuff. Right. It takes all kinds. You mentioned that you're an introvert and that you were shy. So does that bring up like what some of the challenges were or what are they currently for you, I guess? So I would say now it's that's a lot less of a challenge because for me, building in a process for that has made that uh, significantly easier. Uh, the challenges for me now are a lot more focused on long-term business development stuff, right? So what I mean by that is the way entertainers are paid is mostly cash. We are dealing with bringing in little piles of cash home every day. And over time, right, those little piles, if you're you know lucky enough to not have to shell out for family emergencies or other folks um, and have that completely depleted over time, that's going to start to build up, right? So you start to develop a nest egg and maybe you start claiming more and more of that income on your taxes. And for a lot of us, we're the first people in our families to ever have access to those kind of resources that quickly. And that brings up a lot of challenges that are really present. So for example, do you decide to incorporate as a business so you can lower some of your tax expenses? Do you really choose to manage your work expenses budget? Do you start working on a regular schedule? And then if you do all that, what the heck do you do with 
all of the new responsibilities that creates, right? So when you're looking at a $30,000 tax bill and you're the first person in your family, you know, everyone else in your family is making 25,000 a year, that's mm-hmm. so overwhelming. So for me, the biggest challenges uh, have been getting to a great psychological place of one, being able to accept that kind of abundance in my life, and then also be really active about building long-term wealth and resources for me and the folks in my family. I guess that's a big priority for me. And that's been, that's been a huge challenge, right? Because make, once you start making the money, it's like, okay, that can feel automated. That can feel autopilot. But I think really when you long-term start to try to transform that into something bigger, a lot of things come up and it is a lot of inner work and also a lot of financial work Um, and building a great financial team of people who can be great advisors and um, just help me develop a plan for resources has also been a big thing the last couple of years. This is a really good episode for me to record before I go to my Sunday night shift, I will tell you. (laughs) It's helping me broaden some of my attitudes. Um, So something that comes up that you made me think of is when I'd been stripping for a couple of years and I don't know if it was like it for you, but once you figure out you can do it, it's kind of like, oh, it's always going to be like this, right? <laughs> no, two year stripper is way different than 10 year stripper. And I'm like tired now. So <laughs> I have to take care of the money more. But I remember I was all happy. I'd made like $400, which is nothing to sneeze at. Absolutely fine. But I was super happy about it. And I was like, kind of like, showing off to the booking guy a little bit who was nearby and a friend of mine. And uh, he's like, how long have you been stripping? And I, I said, like, I don't know, three or four years, whatever the hell it was, two, three, mm-hmm. four. And he's like, how much money do you have saved? And I was like, oh, shit. He says, it doesn't <laughs> matter how much you make if you're not saving it. Absolutely. And, and you know, that's one of the things I try to really drill into people's heads is your career, your career will never make or break in a single shift. And Mm. because so many of us are used to either working week to week or paycheck to paycheck or shift to shift, that big internal move from look at this pretty little pile of money or even look at this big pile of money in my closet sitting there collecting dust and losing value into, hey, I'm doing things with that actively and I feel in control of my investments and my retirement accounts. Man, that is a big Leap. And I, it really does take support. And I think it takes a lot of community networking and being around people who think that way. Uh, because unfortunately, I don't think it's the industry norm yet for those to be conversations we have openly. It's very, a lot of folks, I think, have that instinct that, you know, like you said, that three to four year instinct of like, oh, let me show off this little pile of money I made tonight, right? Mm-hmm. But when we sit down to talk about, hey, who's your accountant? Who's your financial planner? How are you planning for retirement? Uh, mm-hmm. Those conversations can can bring a lot more feelings of shame or guilt or like, oh, no, I've procrastinated uh, or just, hey, I don't know what to do about this. Right. So uh, mm-hmm. that's that's definitely there for the industry to think through. Mm-hmm. I, I've met not many, but I've definitely known and met other strippers who like don't even track how much they make. So they don't know how much they made in a year. Mm-hmm. And then maybe they've spent a lot of it on fast fashion and takeout, which is really easy to do because we have apps on our phones and you can buy mm-hmm. stuff by hitting a button. Um, but then they're like, I'm broke. Like, I mean, how many people do you know that are working all the time and make more money than most of their peers? But they're like, I'm broke. And it's like, mm-hmm. well, what are you spending it on? Absolutely. So and it's it's not just us, right? Right. It right is now. a societal 
widespread thing that we don't have financial literacy in schools, that we don't have any education on money, and that it is a taboo subject to talk about with friends and with family of Mm -hmm. how much you make, how much you put away, and what you're doing with it. And really Mm -hmm. changing that conversation is especially critical for us because as many of us are femme-presenting folks or identify as women, uh, our role has been for a very long time to not think and not plan and not engage that. So that avoidance or that fear is intergenerational in more than one way, right? It's not just, hey, my family doesn't know about money, but specifically them presenting folks in my family, we're expected to not even think about money, not touch it and not have any agency around financial education. Um, have you ever worked as an employee stripper? I have not. Oh, actually, I I did for maybe two weeks. I think I worked for maybe two weeks, but it was still because, you know, when I say, when you say employee, uh, I, I'm a little bit nitpicky about that. I used to work for an employment law firm. And so when I hear employee, there's certain federal qualifications that you have to meet to be an employee. And I don't think a single club I've ever worked at has actually by the book treated me as a W2. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. I, I like people being able to choose how they want to report and show up and have their their money like recorded or in the system. Um, I've only worked in places where I'm an independent contractor stripper. And something I want to clarify for listeners is like when we say we get paid in cash, we get tipped in cash. The venue's not paying us. Like, have you ever worked in a venue that paid you? Um, That one venue did. But again, because it was only on paper that way. I was still paying quote unquote rentals back to them to be at the club. So end of the day, not really, right? No, certainly yeah. not by any market rate of, of the kind of work I'm doing and the expectations of earnings I have uh, in the industry. Okay. Yeah. So what we make is what is handed to us by people. And that's still something a lot of folks don't seem to know. Like I've talked to customers and a lot of time it's women, but not always. It's all people. But they're like, oh, so do they pay you well here? And I'm like, well, how much would you like to tip me? And they're like, what? And I'm like, I only make what folks want to give me. Like, right. Like whether I get paid well depends on you, sir. (laughs) Right. It's not like, oh, Elle went on stage 10 times. So the club owes her this amount of money. Yeah, no. Um, Okay. So. Um, So one thing I do want to bring up, and this might be more for industry folks than for outside uh, of industry folks, but that distinction of whether you can choose to be an employer or a contractor is a false distinction. What I mean by that is that legally, that's not true. We don't get to choose. No one gets to choose that because that's federal statute that determines whether we are that or not. So there are different uh, standards that the courts use to determine that. I think it's about seven different uh, things, like, for example, whether you work at the venue or not, whether they dictate what you wear or not, your scheduling, the way you're paid, your freedom to choose how you do projects. All of that affects whether you're a contractor or an employee. So while clubs give this quote unquote choice of whether you want to be an employer or contractor, in reality, they're making it very, very difficult to choose the employee option, even though technically a lot of our work can be classified as employee work. And most courts have cited that stripping should be classified as employee work. Now, do I prefer that? 
Probably not because I travel so much and I really enjoy the freedom of how they've set up contracting and because clubs do not like to set us up as employees. So the ones that have, it seems like they made it really difficult for dancers to get paid and have used that as an excuse to take a lot more out of what we're bringing into the club. Mm -hmm. Um, But end of the day, like that decision really is not up to anyone choosing a box on a form, right? That is statute that's the courts and that's like written into legislature like the FLSA. I love that distinction. Thank you for bringing that up. I personally, I do not believe that any venue could ever pay me as an employee as much as money as I could potentially earn in tips. (laughs) So I don't want it. And I haven't seen a successful model. I've heard from a couple other strippers around the country that employee status or so-called employee status at their club is working fine for them. Um, the way it's set up in Oregon where I am, I don't think it would function. Um, but that is a really important distinction. And we'll see how that plays out in future uh, legislation and decision-making. So I wanted to read some of these uh, responses. I asked my social media audience, I said, strippers only, what are some of the annoying things that civilians or clients do? Um, I don't like to get super negative. I'm trying to like heal my personhood and, and give back to the world and be more positive. But these are still kind of funny to laugh at. And they can be helpful because folks will be like, oh, shit, I did that. <laughs> don't do that. We're here to learn. Um, so I'm going to read some of these and reactions. Welcome, Carmen. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what are the most annoying things civilians or clients do? Touch me before talking to me. Don't lead with hands. How do you feel about that? Agreed. Look, stop. My dog's over here just licking his balls. Oh. <laughs> I know. I'm like, I love you, but not on the audio, please. Uh, ben Crane, he's a man stripper. He says, sometimes people record without asking or tipping. I stop moving and I turn my back to them. Yeah, absolutely not. And I, I really wonder what you're thinking or what lack of thought is happening in your head to ever mm-hmm. think either one of these is appropriate. Like it wouldn't be appropriate to do it on the street to a stranger and you're doing it in this environment where we're vulnerable and we're naked and um, we're giving you this amazing entertaining experience and you are mm-hmm. <laughs> sullying it. You're sullying it with your hands and your phones. Mm-hmm. Don't be a tourist of life. <laughs> yeah. You're potentially like outing someone and, uh, Yeah, there's so many viral videos where like people have recorded each other out in the street and out in the world. But then like the strip club, I feel like some people do it just to show their friends like, hey, I'm in a club. Look at me. I'm doing this wild thing. Uh, That's it. I don't know. That's the feeling I get sometimes where I'm like, please don't do that. But it's actually a misdemeanor in a lot of states to record somebody in a state of undress without their knowledge or permission and to distribute that to anyone, even if you're not doing it for money. So FYI, people don't do that. You're also dealing with incredibly fit performers and even more fit, bigger dudes that are paid just to kick you out uh, <laughs> in a space that's in the middle of the night where there's often not cameras and where police generally aren't around. Like, <laughs> no one is going to protect you if someone grabs your phone or smashes it or does the same thing to you. And that's not a threat. That is just like, it happens. Being self aware is like, hey, 
protect yourself. You're going to potentially <laughs> cause some damage to you or your property. For I, a 10 second blurry video. It's I not worth it. Definitely saw someone smashing a customer's phone a week ago and the customer <laughs> deserved it. I am not kidding. I came outside and I saw a phone just being smashed on a rail. It was like bending in half. And it was a customer who absolutely deserved it. He just poked a, a, a stripper in the Volvo while we'll she was on stage and then like argued about it. And then started saying all these slurs and how he was going to like shoot our bouncers and stuff. And anyway, someone got his phone and smashed it. So, (sighs) and you know what, if anyone comes by asking, no one will have seen it, heard about it. No one knows. So hope, hope you had that in the cloud, sir. Yeah. Keep your phone in your pocket. Uh, Let's see. Someone says, I don't like it when people tell me they don't like strip clubs in response to me disclosing that I'm a stripper. Fair. Like, okay, that's fine. Then don't go there. Yeah. Like, not about me, you know? Cool. That's an interesting fact. Didn't ask, but thanks for letting me know. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Uh, Let's see. Someone says, always the same lines. What's your real name? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm actually going to call that one out because that is a pet peeve of mine. Um, I feel like the keys to the kingdom are that there are such a limited amount of objections that customers give us. And when any of those is causing an emotional reaction, like annoyance, that is just a sign that you have not practiced or handled or mastered that. To mm-hmm. me, those are invitations to have something prepared to say, to use that as a moment to build connection and uh, to be witty and funny and sound off the cuff, even though you've dealt with that same line 30 times this week, so right? Smart. It's almost like you're getting the same quiz every day. And every time you're like, I hate this question okay, let's just figure out the answer so you can ace it, right? And use that to your advantage. Right. So examples of that could be, this is the name you can tell your mother Mm -hmm. when you bring me home to meet her. (laughs) Teehee. Like, why does it matter? Um, Or I I had a stripper friend who her thing was that guys would ask her name and she's like, well, you can guess while I give you a lap dance. And if you get it right, like I'll give you another one free. They never got it right. And even if they did, she wasn't going to give them another one. Right. <laughs> but it was like, okay, I'm going to get that $20 at the time. Dances were at that place, $20. Um, and I was like, man, she's so much more patient than me. So I think you're right. <laughs> Don't take it personally. People want to feel like they're connecting and they want to feel special. What's your real name? Uh, let's see what else we got. Someone says, Don't ask how much we make. Fair. Someone says, please don't pee in my hand, LOL. Okay. Okay, fair. That's a very unique experience. <laughs> yeah. Uh, someone says, I hate it when clients say, quote, instead of dances, I'd love to take you out on a real date. What Again, do you say to that's that? An, that's another example of the same behavior of like, one, you're here every night. Two, have some things ready. So for example... I would love for you to take me out on a real date, but every guy who comes in here says that to me. So if you really mean that and you want me to believe you, I want you to spend some quality time in here with me first. I've been burnt. I don't want to go outside of here. I have trust issues, you know, so you're really going to have to earn your way into my affection, right? You just, you just set up a sale. He made it so easy for you. (laughs) You're so good. Someone says, I hate when they wave a $2 tip and ask you to work for it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Mm. Someone says, don't ask me where I live. 
Mm-hmm. I always I lie. Yeah, I have a prepared response for a lot of things. I'll say a mm-hmm. neighborhood or a part of Portland where I used to live. So I like mm-hmm. I have the lies prepared. Um, <laughs> Folder so- of lies, page three, line four. <laughs> mm-hmm. Check, check, check. Uh, someone says, please don't try to bite, lick, slap or pull hair without consent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Please don't compare me to other dancers. You don't have to insult my peers to try to compliment me. Mm-hmm. What do you say to that? I always say, well, everyone likes different things. Change the um, subject. Well, one of the big offers that I like to make is two to three dancers at a time on one customer. So I usually try to redirect that into actually, I think that this person specifically is like so beautiful and I have such a crush on her and I would love for her to play with us. Mm. And you know, that just, they usually are like, Oh my God, you're right. And that's the end of the discussion. I feel like one of the big um, themes that I try to remind myself of in that space is would I rather be right or be paid? Right. So I'm like, Mm. am I really going to change this man's um, very unhealthy desire to compare us to each other in one conversation like is he really here to listen to me preach to him or um, debate him or yeah. can I just show him through my actions that I am supportive of my coworkers in a way that like takes money out of his wallet and goes to them <laughs> yes I love all this all right so we're gonna take a break everybody go check out Carmen on Instagram racks to riches if you haven't already you said you're on Twitter mm-hmm yeah, but primarily I feel like Instagram and then YouTube is where we put our longer form educational How, how can folks find you on YouTube? Just Racks to Riches? Uh, yeah, Racks to Riches. Awesome. All right, we'll be right back. Ioba Toys is the creator of the super silent sex toys, the Oh My G and the Oh My C. The Oh My G is a G-spot massager with three intensity levels, a massaging pearl, and a unique C-shape made to precisely hit the G-spot. The Oh My C is a clitoral massager with a rotating massaging pearl that mimics a tongue or fingers, also known as oral sex, and it fits in the palm of your hand. Both toys are super silent and come in pink or white. Try code L30 for 30% off on iobatoys.com. Do you have sex questions? Do you want help learning new techniques, communicating with a partner, opening a relationship, or exploring kink? Sex and intimacy coach Stella Harris can help. Book a session now to take your intimate life to the next level. Listeners of this podcast receive 20% off their first session with code TTS. Learn more and schedule at www.stellaharris.net or follow her on Instagram at Stella Harris Erotica. Welcome back to They Talk Sex podcast. You can email me, theytalksex at protonmail.com. You can email our guest. This is the Stripping and Hustle episode with Carmen at rackstoriches.com is how you contact her. And let's do some listener questions. All right. Listener question one. How do you avoid workplace drama with the other strippers or staff? Mm. To me, avoiding drama is about what you do before you are even at your shift. So that means your daily routine, showing up with a mindset that you're there to be professional and to work first, and that socializing is not the point of the club. So 
I think it's a lot easier to get into drama if you are sitting in the locker room, right? Mm -hmm. Or if after every approach, you have to go back to the bar or to the locker room or sit around for extended periods of time to get yourself together again. I think that's Mm -hmm. how you just end up having so much social time that you can develop all these plot lines and side quests. Mm -hmm. When if you're really there to work, right? Usually I will show up fully ready. I'll put on my lashes. I'll walk in with like my headphones, like big giant noise canceling headphones, take them off and then go on the floor. So Mm. it's like I'm spending 30 seconds in the locker room, maybe a 10 to 15 minute break in my shift. Mm -hmm. But most of the time, like 99% of the time, I'm talking to customers. So Mm -hmm. there's really no time to have drama if that's your approach to the club. And I think it's a really good, uh, it's a really good tell of, maybe shifting some work habits if it feels like you know so much about your house mom and the floor staff and the dj and the manager uh, and the other dancers and you know more about them than you do about your customers Mm-hmm. agreed yeah totally i sometimes i've noticed folks are like oh l really keeps to herself and it's like yeah because the more i drink or hang out or talk shit or shoot the crap or whatever with the people who aren't paying me which is my peers like the more likelihood there is for conflict and people telling secrets and people saying like Mm -hmm. other people's names about stuff. And the headphones is a great one. And also headphones are so good to have because if some shit starts to happen and you don't want to get pulled into it, you put them on. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. (laughs) And, and you know, like one of the things that has really made it so people don't bring me any drama is being very selfish about my own mental well-being at work. What I mean by that is a lot of what we do with customers is already emotional labor. Like we're taking care of them. We're holding space for them. So for a lot of folks, they continue that behavior into the locker room or into the bar or whenever someone approaches with like a complaint or an excuse or with just drama from their personal lives. And for me, my workspace is sacred. I'm there to make money. I'm like an athlete. I have so many years and then I won't be able to do this thing I love anymore. Mm -hmm. So you approaching me with that negativity or that anger is a personal affront to me. And I take it very seriously. And it's not by escalating or uh, by making it worse. It's just by disengaging, saying something like, oh, well, that's not how I see it. I'm actually having a great day and customers are here to pay me. So excuse me, I'm going to go find the next person who has my money. And you Mm -hmm. do that two or three times to someone who is used to getting that free emotional labor from coworkers. And they just realize that you're really not going to make room for them to dampen your headspace. And then they just go find someone else, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like you can be respectful and kind, but also be very direct and also focused. Mm -hmm. And if someone doesn't like that, they're probably not someone that's going to be a great work friend for me anyway. Yeah. Anytime I get dragged online by someone who says I was like shitty to them at work, I'm like, who is this person? Oh, that's someone who's a bully in the club and I didn't want to participate. And Mm -hmm. I told them that politely. Okay. Mm -hmm. Some people are just kind of toxic (laughs) and they want to bring that stuff around and you just got to do the best you can to avoid it because you can change, but other people, you can't make them change. Absolutely. And, and, you know, part of that is also realizing uh, how, like how much of a privilege there is in having spaces of calmness and of rest and of self-awareness outside of work so you can show up to work that way. Like sometimes I do step back and realize if someone lives their life in conflict and in chaos and in stress and in drama, they are looking for those things 
as a way to normalize their work experience. So it's Mm -hmm. not about me and there's nothing I can do, unfortunately, to change that for them. The best I can do is to be a good example of what it looks like to be in that headspace so that maybe one day they'll go, hey, it looks like that's a lot calmer than what I'm going through every day. And I wonder if there's a way to do that and incorporate that into how I show up to work. Yeah. So this segues great into listener question number two. How do you avoid or manage burnout? Hmm. So this, the answer to this has changed over time because when I started dancing, I was in school full time. After that, I had a full time job. And really, it's only been about the last four or five years where I've been primarily dancing. So back then, I actually thought it was easier because I was dancing for shorter periods of time. And so that burnout couldn't settle in. And Later down the road, I, I've always done a lot of traveling and breaking, like broken up my year. Uh, so, for example, go hike the Appalachian Trail for six months or go to New Zealand for a couple months. Stuff like that where it was like, this is exciting. I'm looking forward to it. And it's going to take me completely out of the work environment. Mm-hmm. Now that I'm working a lot more and that my goals are less go travel and go explore and more, hey, build this long-term wealth, I am definitely seeing burnout. And the way I handle that is a couple of things. One is routine and schedule. And I mean that in a big picture sense. So not just am I working four or five days this week, but how many days uh, or how many weeks am I trying to work before I take time off? So right now I'm working 10 weeks on, two weeks off, Hmm. and I have to take the time off. I am not allowed to work or to think about work in that time. And that's been great because it's all the other creative projects then have room to grow and I get to be excited. Um, The other area is in developing my own skills. So I think burnout is a great, it's a great signal from your brain and your body that you've gotten yourself into so much repetition that it's autopilot. So it's not exciting or fun for you to be there, Mm -hmm. right? So we get bored, we get Mm -hmm. exhausted. And I think as dancers, we can really get into our routine of like, this is how I do my dances. This is how I make my money. I'm not going to change anything because the formula is working. And switching that up is so useful. So like learning new party tricks, learning new jokes, working on a new stage set, uh, really trying to approach customers that maybe make you feel a little intimidated or that you're not sure of how that dynamic would go makes it exciting again. But it is putting yourself in a place of discomfort. Uh, right? Which is why the routine part is so important up front, because if there's no routine, it's much harder to take those leaps of faith. And if you do have some routine and some stability in how you make your money and how you're tracking and how you know, you know, I'm for sure going to walk out this week with this amount of money if I work this amount of hours, that's when you go to the space where you get to play and really work on developing new and really interesting skills. And then it's not boring, right? It's like, okay, I'm excited to go try this new thing that I'm kind of not great at yet. (laughs) I love your attitude. It's about like exploring or cracking a code or just being Mm -hmm. curious. I love that. Yeah, it's because it's fun. It should be fun. You know, we get to play. We get to dance. We get to be silly. Mm -hmm. Uh, We get to be cute. Yeah, Yeah. we get to play dress up. I always call it, you know, doing my drag because it's so elevated and explosive and it's like colors and different palettes and giant lashes or, you know, Mm -hmm. you can wear and do or say pretty much uh, whatever you want within reason. And that's, I think we sometimes (laughs) forget that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Lots of people love the kooky girl too. That's me. Um, So 
this is obviously also different for everybody. Um, I could list mine, but personally, do you have any kind of injuries that you're prone to or anything mm. you've noticed? Mm-hmm. So um, the, the, I think the biggest, well, I'll start with what they are, then I'll start with sort of habits that, that sort of remove those from, from me so far. So I'm 28 right now. And in the last three years, my body has been changing a lot and mm-hmm. I've started to feel the wear and tear of a lot of different <laughs> activities, whether that's hiking or dancing, et cetera. Um, mm-hmm. My biggest injury prone area is my knees. And that's because I've just done thousands of miles of hiking and repetitive motion plus heels plus stage is like, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it's a lot. So mm-hmm. for me, I have to go to the gym and I have to lift big, heavy weights at least a couple of times a week, because if I don't, those stabilizer muscles start getting weak and that's when they start hurting. Hmm. Um, so that's the biggest one for me. And I would say the second biggest one was realizing the physical, literal pain and discomfort of drinking at work. Mm-hmm. So I would say until I was about 25, I would felt pretty comfortable drinking at the club and I'm certainly not a nun, right? Like I've had my fun um, and I'm not someone who's sober all the time, but I found mm-hmm. really reducing intake of alcohol or, you know, keeping it to maybe like special occasions or whatever. Like my body was going through so much. I didn't even notice, you know, mm-hmm. inflammation, headaches, sleep patterns really messed up and mm-hmm. mostly emotional. So like anxiety and depression and fear of going into work was very tied in to having those substances be a part of the work routine. So just removing that um, really reduced what, you know, I know it's not injury in the sense of being an acute injury, but I do think it is a chronic injury to your organs mm-hmm. um, and your, you know, your sense of well-being mm-hmm. uh, to, to yeah. do that every day. Yeah, definitely. No, I have a lot of alcoholism in my family and it's so hard to not drink when it's literally being Mm -hmm. handed to you all the time and clients will bond with you and relax faster if they think that you're on their level. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, Um, I definitely agree. Alcohol is a big one, especially the wear and tear. Something I've said to other strippers and just other people who want to cut back Mm -hmm. is, you know, three to four drinks when you work might not seem like a lot, but if you work three to five times a week, count how many drinks you had in a month while you Mm -hmm. were working. And, uh, yeah, my inflammation, my hips, my pelvis, like everything is so much work, so much Mm -hmm. worse for me when I'm imbibing. So absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for the reminder. Again, this is a great episode for me to record before I go to my ship. (laughs) Um, so how do you perceive aging and dancing? Cause you said you're 28. Mm-hmm. Um, I will be 35 in a month. I've mm-hmm. been doing this since I was 22. I've definitely noticed my clientele is like shifted a little, not a mm-hmm. whole lot. There's so many variables. Um, but you know, staring down the barrel of my forties pretty soon, <laughs> it's, it's interesting. So how do you perceive it thus far? So thus far, I think of aging more in the sense of my financial planning than I do in the sense of being at the club. I will say when I hit 27, I did have a tiny existential crisis of like (laughs) so much of my income and so much of my lifestyle is predicated on looking a certain way and being able to perform a certain way. Mm -hmm. And then I just took a deep breath and looked around and you know, connected the dots on the folks I really respect and love in the industry who are older than me. And I was like, life does not end when you're 30. You know, Mm -hmm. it's Mm -hmm. very much built into our industry of like, 
yeah, if you're, you're older and you're doing this, something's wrong with you. Or like, if you're getting older and you're doing this, you know, when are you going to get a regal job? Right. Uh, it's time to stop. It's always Jim Bob from Arkansas who has, you know, (laughs) $3,000 in his retirement account and he's spending two of them at the club that night. So it's like, you really have to, I think the older you are in the industry, the more you have to be really in tune with, Hey, what am I trying to get out of this? Uh, what is the goal of going in every day? Who do I want to be when I'm there? And, you know, what is the long-term planning that I'm focusing on month over month? Because um, mm-hmm. it really does start to accumulate. And I, th- I think that's when aging would feel a little bit more scary. Like I, I've noticed the more forward thinking I am and the more secure I feel in the decisions I'm making, the more I feel very confident and very sexy in getting older as a dancer, right? right. It's like, oh, like right. I'm the one. I know exactly what I'm doing. I know what I'm here for. Um, so, I, but I do appreciate that it is something we think about and I appreciate that it does create a little bit of urgency because I just, it is very hard in your early 20s to care about any of this, you know, <laughs> grown up, boring sounding stuff of planning ahead and saving and this and that, mm-hmm. right? So, that's what makes it exciting when you're older. It's like, wow, now I can really make a difference for, for myself. And I feel like, you know, when I'm there and that has like a, a new sense of meaning, that's like a lot more exciting than, oh, what trip am I going to go on? Or what cool thing am I going to buy this week? Mm-hmm. I'll say personally, it's really getting like, it's pretty hilarious to me at this point where, like I said, I'll be 35 in a month. And if I have like a group of customers that are like just turned 21 or 22 and, uh, it can be a really fun way to like play with the dynamic. At this point, I'm just like, the joke is like, you can call me mommy. And I'm not yeah. even oh, like, the, and that the much way older. they love it, the way they <laughs> love it, right? If you are in the industry and you're like, oh my God, I, I don't know what I'm going to do, you just wait until you tell a little boy. That you are, oh, I'm almost 30. I might as well be 50. I might as well be Mrs. <laughs> Robinson to these children, the way they love it, you know? And you get to connect with folks who are older and have a little more life experience who, you know, um, as I'm getting older, I'm like, wow, I really was dancing for these 50-year-old men who are completely comfortable uh, with the emotional intelligence of a 21-year-old. Mm-hmm. Like, I appreciate now a lot more the customers who would be like, 21, um, I'm, I'm kind of okay right now. Like, yes, you. yeah. Uh, but please come back and like, you know, please come back when you have some some adult thoughts in your brain. I totally. <laughs> Not to young folks, but. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's a different, I have a different energy now too. And I've noticed that like, so my main clients have always been like men 40 to 60. And mm-hmm. that hasn't really changed for the most part. Um, and I'm noticing now that when they ask me my age and I don't say 24, what they used mm-hmm. to say was like, oh, you're so mature for your age or whatever. Mm-hmm. And now they're like, oh, that's nice. I like that you're a little older. Like they feel more mm-hmm. comfortable because maybe I'm like half their age instead of mm-hmm. way less. Mm-hmm. So yeah, all about adjusting. Um, okay, let's do another one. We'll take another break. So for you personally, I don't know if you've experienced any judgment or stigma discrimination from your family, but this person's asking, do you have any tips on how to address harsh judgment from family? So I, I was very lucky in that my family has been incredibly supportive and kind, and I was really scared to tell them because uh, they're a little bit more traditional. And I just, I think what I came up with in my head that they would say or think was a lot scarier than the actual um, interaction we had. That's nice to hear. That's great. That's nice. I, it's possible, folks. Mm-hmm. It's possible. 
Right. But I've also, I've had so many friends that have been disowned or have had to deal with some really, really crappy family situations. So Mm -hmm. I realize that's not necessarily the norm. Mm -hmm. Usually what I, I will say from observation, usually what I see when it's family concern that's coming from a healthy place, like from people who you want to keep around in your life, they're worried about the cultural representation of dancing versus the reality. So what they don't want is for you to be coerced or trafficked or to be like the last Dateline episode they just saw. Yeah. Because that's what they see, right? It's like the SVU body is the sex worker. Yeah. Uh, So understandably, if you care about someone, I mean, the things I heard when I first started from like close friends who are, you know, bleeding heart liberals, who are college educated, who have all this, you know, sensitivity training in their lives were like, hey, I just don't want you to end up on the side of a ditch. Or I think you're just going to get into drugs and find a pimp and I'm going to read about you on the news. And that was heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Like you, th- you assume just because I'm taking on this job that I'm not going to exercise common sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so that can be really hurtful. But I think, you know, if you care about this job and you you see it as a path to something that's important to you, and those people aren't going to give you that path in any other way. You ultimately got to make the decision that's right for you. And I think when you start showing results, a lot of those people come around and a lot mm-hmm. of those people eat their words. Mm-hmm. Like those same people have seen me now grow multiple businesses, be successful in my own right, live a Travel. very healthy, productive lifestyle, do things no one else in my family has been able to do and support the people I care about. Mm-hmm. And if at that point, right, if someone still has something to say, they just don't belong in my life. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> at that point, they just got to move on. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. yeah, I tell newbies, if you don't rely on your family and you don't need anything, like you're not on their insurance mm-hmm. or yeah. you don't drive their car. Mm-hmm. I mean, hide it if you have to, if they're not going to be mm-hmm. supportive. But yeah. if you can fully support yourself, you don't need these people. You don't. Um, and what you said about like showing, showing like the, the fruits of your labor. Mm-hmm. Like when I told my mom and my parents, I'd already been doing it, I think for like a year, year and a half. Mm-hmm. And so she was visiting me in Portland and she could see I had like an apartment that I kept decently clean and I wasn't, (laughs) you know, like I wasn't into some new drugs that she didn't know about. And I had a dog that I was taking care of and I was still going to school. And so all of her fears that she'd seen on TV, she had to Mm -hmm. kind of confront like maybe, maybe I was misled a little by society. Right. Right. Yeah. And you know, I I think especially in this digital age and the social media age, there's this, uh, inclination to want to put everything out there. And if you're just getting started, I really think it's a need to know basis. Mm -hmm. Like new sexual partners don't need to know what you do. Uh, Your family members that live two states away don't need to know what you're up to. Unless Mm -hmm. that is something that is valuable for you in that relationship to share that, you really are under no obligation and don't, you know, don't advertise it online either. You know, like it is a safety thing and it is a, you're probably keeping cash in your house thing. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. be, no one needs to know unless they really need to know. Mm -hmm. Uh, Slow disclosure. And don't talk about how mm -hmm. much you make. I know it's Mm -hmm. exciting, but you know, don't tell people how much you make because you don't have that trust built in yet. Mm -hmm. And people will use you for an ATM because they don't see the hard work that goes into it. And they're not taking the bodily or the emotional, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, pain or, or hardship. So if they're like, Mm -hmm. Oh, you can make $300. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Well then you can buy me this thing. Right. You know? Right. 
seen yeah. that. And oh, especially with partners. I just, that's the one thing I really don't want to forget to say is be so careful with romantic partners and with this work. Mm-hmm. If they are disapproving, if they are trying to shame you, if they are mad at you for going to work, if they're passive aggressive, like that is a huge red flag. That is a factory that prints out giant red flags and mm-hmm. just run the other way. Because mm-hmm. uh, that's the one, you know, with family, it's like, okay, let's work on it over time. And if you need a minute, we can, you know, take our distance or come back together with partners. It's like, you really cannot afford to have someone who's not going to be in your corner, especially mm-hmm. early on in this industry. Mm-hmm. Certainly. All good advice. Let's take another break. Hey there. Do you want to help people and make money doing it? Becoming a coach might be your ticket. The coaching industry is currently filled with a lot of straight white coaches and working with straight white people who have the privilege to hire them. The Coaching Guild is changing that. The Coaching Guild is looking for diverse people with diverse experiences and backgrounds who want to get university-level training to become a coach. This is not a shortcut certification program. This is intense training for the real world. They are looking for the artists, the rebels, and the wild ones. You can change the world one client at a time and make money doing it. Visit www.thecoachingguild.com. Do you have a sensitive vulva or vagina? Me too. People with vaginas will experience at least one yeast infection in their lifetime, and many folks like myself get them every time the seasons change. As someone who relies on their vaginal health for their personal and professional wellness, I use Momotaro Apotheca solutions for preventing bacterial vaginosis or yeast infection. Their products also serve urinary tract infections, postpartum care issues, aftercare, and general irritation from sex, clothing, and exercise. I love these things. I use them to shorten my healing time or prevent irritation. Use Stripper Writer for a discount code and check out their affiliated CBD products at Oshihana.com. That's MomotaroApotheca.com and Oshihana.com. Welcome back to They Talk Sex podcast. We are speaking with Carmen at RacksToRiches.com. Find her on YouTube, Instagram, RacksToRiches.com, <laughs> and <laughs> all over the country, maybe coming to a strip club near you. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So some of my audience who's been listening for a couple years, they've heard me talk about bad legislation like FOSTA and SESTA. Mm-hmm. They've heard me talk about how that legislation, I made 30 to 40% less money in the couple years after it passed because mm-hmm. I couldn't advertise on social media because the bills restricted um, the availability for adult providers and sexually relevant content creators to advertise their stuff. Um, can you think of, like, did FOSTA SESTA impact you at all? No, it did not. Um, That's awesome. I love hearing yeah. that. I don't hear that that often from sex mm-hmm. workers and adult entertainers, yeah. so I am glad to hear yeah. that. Okay. It is. It is. I will qualify that, that it, that was a very specific situation, right? It was because I was not creating online content. Hmm. It was because I was working at clubs that did great marketing and that treated me really well. Awesome. Um, and because I was not relying on any of that social to bring me customers. And that is not common. That is super rare. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And that's a good point because I notice also a lot of 
um, baby strippers and just strippers in general, they feel a lot of pressure to be on social media and to be really mm -hmm. prolific on social media. And I understand that because I do that, but mm -hmm. I've also been building my social media for 15 years. So, mm -hmm. you know, you do not in any, mm -hmm. you do not have to have social media in order to be good mm -hmm. at the club. They're actually two different things. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I think unless you have a hashed out developed social media strategy, a lot of that is just wasting your time. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I know some folks will disagree with me on that. I think it can be great marketing and it can be great exposure when done correctly, but that when done correctly part is really critical. And a lot of newer entertainers do spend so much time on promoting work pages that are, it's like the concept's not thought out. It's not consistent enough. It's not really delivering results. It's just taking away your time mm -hmm. when you're literally paying the club to do your marketing for you. A good club will bring in good customers. That's why you're paying house fees and the DJ and the floor. Ultimately, ideally. you're paying yeah. them ideally yeah. so that you get to interact with their customer base. Yeah. Um, I would say it might be more important and a lot of folks do this, like might be more important just to have like a work phone number or a specialized email that you can use to keep in touch with clients who actually pay you. Absolutely. You can do that Absolutely. very privately. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because you know what? A lot of these dudes are not on social like that. You know, I mm -hmm. think a lot of times, whether it's our dance style or the way we communicate or the way we share information, we do the things other people around us are doing. So you're going... <sighs> all right, you're posting on Instagram and your work friends are going to see that. But this 40 year old married man right. who has a LinkedIn page is not, I promise you, he's not taking out his phone to look at your, you know, five blurry pictures from the club. That's not going to convince <laughs> him to go in. A text message might, right? right. Like a, a, hi, how are you? I missed you, Mike. Even that same blurry picture sent to his phone with his consent, right? <laughs> if, right especially right. if he has a partner. Right. Um, that's going to do a lot more most of the time than like, you know, doing it just to do it. Right. So that's really nice to hear. So has there been any, have you felt any disruption from anything political or legislative in the last few years? If no, um, that's great. I am very much the exception to the rule here, but no, I have not. Okay. And a lot of that just comes from, I travel so much that I can leave, right? If something doesn't fit my work style, right? Even with mask mandates and with um, club reopenings, I had a lot of freedom this year to go up, oh, I'm packing up and I'm moving to a state where I can work. Um, once I'd, I'd already gotten COVID and so mm -hmm. I couldn't uh, pass it on to other folks. Um, I went, okay, I'm going to go where? Florida, because Florida's completely open, but most folks can't just do that. Right. So right. Um, that's, yeah. Well, that's, that's still good to hear. I love I love hearing people's unique experiences and that's very important. So is there anything that you, <laughs> let me rephrase that. Well, is there anything you'd like to see change in the industries? Oh, absolutely. Right. So just because I'm not feeling the impact of a lot of these decisions day to day does not mean I don't see it uh, or that it's not incredibly unfair or damaging to folks in the industry. Uh, a lot of those things, I think, center around the way we're compensated. So I do appreciate the independent contractor model, but I do see clubs being very, very disrespectful in the way they compensate dancers. And I think that's just 
I, I don't know how you can go to sleep at night knowing that you are taking 50 or 60 or 70% of what a 19 year old is making yeah. and feel good, good about yourself, yeah. you know? Um, and there's a lot of clubs that will take part in really predatory practices. Like, you know, let's pull everyone's tips, uh, you know, and then, you know, everyone gets their pile out of the back room, but we count your money and we tell you how much you get. Um, and then, you know, on top of that treatment, I think, you know, there's the legal side of things. And, you know, we could talk about FOSTA-SESTA all day. We could talk about policies uh, in Texas and New Orleans targeting, uh, you know, under 21 dancers for mm. no reason other than mm. someone just was having a day. Mm. Um, and to clarify, the day, you know. <laughs> yeah, real quick before people are like, wait, what? Uh, certain states that say you need to be 21 or older to work, therefore the 18, 19, 20-year-olds are suddenly not able to work at all. And so maybe that was the only club within like an hour of them and they're unemployed now because some conservatives said that it would help fight trafficking. And literally overnight with no, no evidence based proof that it would change anything. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's, there are so many legislative issues and also a lack of any kind of regulatory support, right? So it's not just, Hey, what laws are there that need to be taken away, but Hey, what worker protections do we have? Um, how is there any protection against discrimination and hiring? That's huge, right? Like mm -hmm. clubs hire, like it is 1952. Uh, mm -hmm. And a lot of that needs to change. Uh, but I think ultimately uh, you can talk about the legal side of it. And you can also talk about the just moral being a good human being side of it. And that to me, um, that's what really breaks my heart. When you see club managers or floor staff uh, taking advantage of entertainers, sexually harassing entertainers, uh, coercing, uh, exploiting, or even, you know, emotionally and sometimes physically abusing their performers, that Mm -hmm. I mean, nothing makes me more upset than knowing it's happening mm -hmm. and seeing these grown adults who will now in the age of social media too, you know, it's like folks who will be like, I, you know, come work for us and we're hiring and this and that. And then, you know, you turn around and, and treat people like that. It's just, mm -hmm. um, those are, I think the biggest changes, you know, the laws are always going to be three steps behind, but Hey, you can start being a good person today. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that costs nothing. I really wish that more clubs would do a better job. In my experience, at least, there's clubs who like will not try to regulate or contain client behavior and they don't want to do things like, say, keep your phone in your pocket, please. Or, you know, can you not please don't ball up your ones and throw them at the dancer, you know, just stuff like that. And I understand that the response sometimes is, well, we don't want to kick these guys out because they might have money and we all want to make money. And mm -hmm. I argue, well, when you raise good clientele and you reinforce good behavior, the people who want to feel safe in that container will come back and it's cyclical because the workers are happier, everyone feels safer, and we're all going to make more money that way. Absolutely. And, you know, the best clubs, as someone that's worked in a lot of clubs, the best clubs are always the best managed clubs. Mm. And it's usually clubs where their payouts are extremely low, where there's very little obligation to turn around and give money to management because ownership is paying management what they should be paid. So they're happy to be there. Mm. And it really, it trickles down the whole way because clubs where they enforce rules with customers and clubs where they let us do our thing and negotiate and advocate for ourselves top entertainers go there and they never ever leave because mm -hmm. it is so 
rare. And, you know, I've taken significant pay cuts to work at a better club that is better quality of life. And I know other folks are doing the same thing. So Mm -hmm. uh, when someone says we can't be good to you and be good to our customers and still make money, my thinking is that is scarcity mentality. Mm -hmm. These are the same clubs saying, oh, you, you really, you can't, you shouldn't upsell our customers. No, no, no. You know, getting into arguments about, hey, I want to charge a thousand for an hour. Oh, you absolutely cannot. No, your customers will pay it. You're just so scared Mm -hmm. of money that you will literally tell your customers to pay less, Mm -hmm. tell me to earn less, and then wonder why, uh, you know, you're not getting a 30% tip out or whatever. Right. (laughs) I I definitely worked in a club where they were like, okay, lap dances are $20. If you ask for more, you will get in trouble. And it's like, well, what if the customer wants to pay me more? And also Mm -hmm. some clients, it's like, uh, perceived value, you know this. If you Absolutely. charge more to some guy who wants to feel good that he can pay that much, he's gonna pay that much. Absolutely. I think I think charging someone who is a multimillionaire twenty dollars for a lap dance ugh. or even ask them to get a lap dance is a slap in the face. And a lot of them will like, say no because they're like, ugh, I don't want yeah. that. They've built their entire life and their work style and have worked for decades, right, to create this perceived social status. Mm-hmm. And you're like, hey, can I give you like a Kmart tank top? No, you yeah. would like head to toe Prada, please. Yeah. Please. Like, can you please charge him? Yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's wild. Yeah. So what are some resources that have been helpful for you and your learning? It sounds like you kind of raw dogged and figured out a lot of this stuff (laughs) all on your own, but can you think of any resources for other folks too? Absolutely. So I'm a bit huge trial and error person, but I started my business so other folks wouldn't have to trial and error because I know how much of a slog that is. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's for every great book or resource, there's, you know, a thousand things that are not that great and not that interesting. So um, let me narrow down a couple of things. In the sales education world, there's a few things that I really love. Uh, there's uh, someone called Chris Voss who talks specifically about negotiation. He has a short masterclass that is just really fabulous if you're wondering how to build rapport connection or you are just not used to negotiating often that is a game changer Uh, i love one of the first introduction to sales books that really got me thinking was seller be sold by grant cardone Mm -hmm. he has some controversial ideas and he's kind of in the sales bro school so I, i would definitely not say you know that doesn't come with its own set of thorns you know so just grain of salt Mm -hmm. Uh, but definitely in bringing that sort of I'm in control of this and how do I control it day to day I just think it's a wonderful book on sales tactics Mm -hmm. Um, now on the other side of that right because we're not just wanting to bring in more money we're wanting to keep that money and grow that money Um, there's a couple folks I'd recommend clever girl finance is a woman named Bola Sukumbi who is incredibly smart and really breaks down financial management concepts into really easy to understand uh, sort of step-by-step processes and I really appreciate uh, the the way she thinks through saving and her story is really inspiring she saved like six figures on like a twenty thousand dollar salary so it's like when dancers say I can't save it's like check out her work like (laughs) yes you can (laughs) right um and then I would say really please please like I implore you I beg you I plead with you if you are a dancer and you take this as a career and you take this as a serious source of income you need a great CPA 
Mm. And if you are really trying to build wealth, you probably need a financial planner and they need to be people you've vetted and that you trust and who will sit with you and answer a thousand questions because our legal and tax landscape is incredibly complicated and confusing. And if you don't have resources, you will end up overpaying tens and tens and tens of thousands of dollars, or you'll be so scared to ever claim money that you won't be able to invest in you or your future. And you don't want to wake up five or 10 years from now going, man, I really should have done that when I was Mm -hmm. bringing in all that cold, hard cash. I have a friend who, uh, well, a few that are retired now, they're in their mid forties. And one of them said very specifically, she said, I made money hand over fist for years and I saved none of it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, (laughs) I don't want that life. Yeah. And it's it's so common and it can happen without you even noticing. But I guarantee you there are folks in the industry who are planning ahead and it really helps to be in contact with them. Like I remember being, you know, maybe early 20s and chatting with one of my friends uh, who, I mean, this woman is, uh, English is her second language. She has a very, I think she has a primary school education hmm. and she has an incredible, incredible investment portfolio, right? Of real assets, of uh, businesses, of properties. And she built that just by using common sense and by being disciplined with herself and just being around her, like being a younger entertainer and having her as my friend and just seeing the way she operated Mm -hmm. was so powerful because I'd never seen that. Like I really didn't have any financial role models. And it's like, oh, wow, we're making the same money. We're doing the same things. We're in the same club. And yet, you know, I was going home and going, oh my God, I still have student debt and car debt. And she was going home to like, I can quit tomorrow if I want to. Wow. And it's just, those are good people to have around you. Mm-hmm. Inspirational. So we talked a lot about stripping. Um, we didn't really talk so much about sex, which is absolutely mm-hmm. fine because this episode <laughs> is a great resource. But I ask all my guests, do you have any sex tips for our audience? Hmm. <sighs> I, I thought about this. I, I thought of two things that have really stuck out in the last like year. Um, one was if you haven't taken some time off of sex for a while, um, that was one development for me that is just fabulous of taking like six months, seven months to just date yourself. Mm. Oh my God. Like it's so much fun to dip back in the pool. And I think it's especially in a space where we are uh, very hypersexualized and where so much of what we do is sensuality. Mm-hmm. Just being able to hold that space was like very fun and exciting and interesting. Um, and the other one I thought about, which is good, you know, at work, not at work, everywhere is practicing talking about boundaries in like a sexy way. Mm. <laughs> which sounds kind of funny, but no, um, it I noticed you know, I notice in sex outside of work or even in, you know, work transactions where I'm explaining boundaries or talking through boundaries that uh, a lot of people haven't done that before. And once you get them sort of going in that direction, it can make things just so much more fun um, to really understand partner needs. Um, And I'll give you one great nonverbal one that I really love. Mm. It comes from like wrestling or like jujitsu or whatever, but it's like two taps, like two gentle taps. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I've just noticed, especially when you're first outlining boundaries, if you're, you know, someone that's naturally shy or you get in your head, sometimes verbalizing, hey, please stop, or I don't like that or do it differently be a little overwhelming Mm -hmm. and just like two little taps is a lot easier and then it's like 
okay, what do you want me to do next? How do we redirect? I just, I think boundaries are sexy. I think negotiating consent is really sexy. And it's something that I, I don't know, this is probably true for you as well, right? That like, I feel like earlier in my sexual life, that wasn't like a thing. Mm-hmm. People really didn't talk like that. Mm-hmm. It was just like, you had to either be, you know, a mouthy Latina like I am and be like, I don't <laughs> like that. Do this differently, right? But it's like, <laughs> if you didn't talk that, it's like, you're kind of SOL. And mm-hmm. I just think it's a lot more tender and fun and like sexy when everyone is, um, is in on it together. It's like fun group project. The tapping, <laughs> I love. The tapping is great. I'm I'm a trained or a trained, well, training martial artist. I took some time off for COVID. Mm-hmm. And yeah, tapping is great when you're nonverbal. I definitely use it in sex and kink play. Mm-hmm. And then for clients, um, yeah, that's a good one too, because it's kind of like, what you doing? <laughs> tap, tap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah something I will do with clients and sex partners also is mostly with clients because there's less of, I think, usually a bond with me than the people I tend to have sex with. And so I will say, instead of saying, I don't like that thing you're doing, I will maybe move their hands to a place and say, I like it when you touch my hair or can you touch my breasts this way? So giving direction, not focusing on what you don't want, but like, what's okay. Let's go to that place. Yeah, what feels good. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a we have a video on YouTube called "Evasive Maneuvers at the Club." Yeah, that is, uh, has a lot of that, and I I love teaching people that because especially uh, when those kind of negotiations haven't happened a lot, I think we tend to assume the worst of the people that we're working with, and especially because there's so much stigma around full service work in clubs. Right, clubs are one of the places where it is like. For a lot of dancers, it's really okay and really socialized to be like, oh my God, I can't believe this person does this or does that mm. or does quote unquote extras, right? And we're like, we all fuck. <laughs> like, we're free or for money, we're all fucking. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the more you learn about your own boundaries and how to express that in a way that's like, they're your accomplice in making it fun versus they're your combatant in they're trying to get something and you're trying to get something else, uh, right? It, it's, it's just more fun. And you, I think you, you get a lot more faith in people that they really do want to make you feel good. And that, you know, there's still the bad apple here and there, but that for the most part, uh, with the right verbiage and the right, you know, body language, you can really direct that energy to something that feels good for everybody. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Carmen, for coming on. Um, I hope every stripper who listened learned at least five to 10 things. (laughs) Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's wonderful to get to chat about this with you. I love talking to other strippers. I don't get to do it that often, like in a place that's not a strip club. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So everybody email Carmen at rackstoriches.com is her email address. I am theytalksex at protonmail.com. And check out Carmen all over social media, on YouTube, on Twitter, on Instagram, and rackstoriches.com. And find me on lstanger.com. Please rate and review this episode. That's how more folks will find us and share the good information. All right, Carmen, I'll see you on the internet. (laughs) See you on the internet. Until next time.